Hi, my name is Nadia Awad, and I'm recording an oral history with Pauline Park as part of the uh, New York Trans Oral History Project with New York Public Library. And I'm at Queen's Pride House, and it is March 9th, 2017. All right, thank you. Okay, um, so I'm just going to start. If you could introduce yourself and just tell, tell me who you are. Uh, so I'm Pauline Park. I am probably best known as an activist here in New York, uh, probably best known for having led the campaign for the transgender rights law that was enacted by the New York City Council in 2002. Um, I am an activist, a writer, also part-time student now. Uh, and uh, I co-founded Queen's Pride House, the LGBT community center in the borough of Queens, where we're sitting right now. In January 1997, I am president of the board of directors. I served as executive director for three years until July, uh, from May 2012 until July 2015. Uh, I continue to serve as the coordinator of the transgender support group here at Queen's Pride House. So I'm just going to hold this here. Um, it'll, it'll, I mean, I'm, oh, so I'm getting, oh, get no, no, you close. don't have to get too close. So you don't have to be uncomfortable. Um, yeah. And I'll just, I mean, you can pick up my voice. I just did that as, so they have like an intro marker. When I did the interview with Skylar, the uh, staff person was sitting near us and said that my peas were too plosive. Oh, well. That's something you can fix in audio editing software. There you go. <laughs> um, uh, so, so how did you get involved in the work that you do now? What was your point of entry? Because you just listed a lot of organizations and, you know. Well, my activism actually started here in New York, but the organization that I the first organization I co-founded was in Chicago. So to explain, uh, I lived in Chicago for five years from 19, um, uh, 1983 to 1988, and then for another year from 94 to 95. Uh, in the summer of 94, in June 94, I came to New York for the Stonewall 25 celebration, commemoration of the 25th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. And I attended a conference, which I just found out about through the magic of email, which was entirely new at that time, um, called the Rice Conference, which was organized by Kapimni, Gay Asian and Pacific Islander Men of New York. And it was primarily for gay Asian men. And um, at the time I was gay male identified, this was before I transitioned. And uh, in the course of the conference, I attended a workshop and met three people who had become friends of mine who were gay Asians in Chicago. And they were very frustrated with the Asians and Friends Chicago group that they were a member of, which, not to put too fine a point on it, was basically a Rice Queens club for white men who were interested in Asians. And so I just said to them, why don't you start a new group? And so we worked together and we uh, co-founded. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Don't worry so about sorry. it. Oh, no problem. No problem. Give me a chance to 
take a sip of water. Um, no problem. Nice to meet you, Enrique. Um, uh, so in the course of this con uh, conference, I attended a workshop uh, with these three gay Asian men who became friends of mine. And we, when I, when we got back to Chicago, we co-founded a group called um, Gay Asians and Pacific Islanders of Chicago, GAPIC. And uh, that, I was involved with the group. I was the chair of the group, the first chair of the group, from September 94 until uh, June 95. Um, I moved to New York in July 95. And so that was my first experience of activism. I also was invited to serve on the board of directors of the Asian American AIDS Foundation of Chicago, which I did for a year. Uh, when I moved to New York, I joined Gapimni as a member and actually ended up being on the steering committee in 1999 and 2000. But before that, I was invited to co-found Queen's Pride House. Uh, there were some preliminary meetings in 1996, but our first uh, board meeting was in January 1997. And I was elected the first secretary of the board of directors and served on the board in different installments uh, from January 97 through May 99 then came back on to the board in 2001 when we opened our first uh, site, which was a storefront on Woodside Avenue in Woodside. Um, left the board a few later, uh, board a few years later, then came back in April 2010 uh, to the board of directors. Was in, uh, by that point, Queen's Pride House had moved to this site on 37th Avenue in Jackson Heights. Um, I uh, became president uh, was elected president of the board in July, the end of July uh, 2010, and became, became very much involved with the management of the organization, uh, and then became even more involved when I was appointed uh, uh, executive director, acting executive director in, uh, in um, May 2012, and served as executive director until July 2015, I was the first and only openly transgendered executive director of an LGBT community center in the city or the state. Actually, still I'm the only one, and was one of only two in the entire country at that time. Where was the second? Uh, in Racine, Wisconsin, believe it or not. Wow. Yeah, it was a very small community center there. Uh, but I was the only transgender woman of color who was the executive director of an LGBT community center at the time, and I don't know of any that has been since then. I don't think there have been, as far as I know, there haven't been any transgendered women of color who've been executive directors of LGBT community centers. Uh, I might add, parenthetically, that I organized the first and so far only uh, forum on pinkwashing and Israeli occupation and apartheid uh, hosted and organized by an LGBT community center anywhere in the country, as far as I know, ever. <laughs> and there's a reason for that. <laughs> uh, but uh, that was in June 20, 
13, and um, Sarah Schulman and I were the were the were the speakers and facilitators. Uh, the other organization that I'm most closely associated with is Niagara, the New York Association for Gender Rights Advocacy, which I co-founded in June 1998. Um, and uh, the campaign that we're best known for was the campaign for the Transgender Rights Bill, uh, which was introduced in 2000 and was enacted in April 2002. Um, we kicked off the campaign for the bill, which was introduced in June 2000, at a press conference in February 2000. And that was, in some ways, my coming out as a public person as a public figure. It was not something I particularly sought, to be perfectly honest. I was perfectly happy being a private person. Uh, but it was a necessary part of running the campaign for the bill. And uh, running a legislative campaign was not only an extraordinary honor in some ways and a privilege, it was also an extraordinary education in real politics. I did my PhD in political science, but to be perfectly honest, academic political scientists are the last people I would turn to for insight about politics. Uh, there's what they would call book learning, and there's real education, which you get when you actually get involved with policymaking and politics. I co-founded a number of other organizations. Um, they uh, they were all relatively short-lived, but they all had an impact in their own way. Uh, I co-founded a group called Iban Queer Koreans of New York in January 1997 and led that group as coordinator until May 1999. Sadly, after I stepped down, the group basically fell apart um, and didn't survive the, the Christmas party in December 1999. Um, I co-founded a group two political clubs. One was called Out Puck Pack, Out People of Color Political Action Club, which was the first political club by and for queer people of color in New York and served as the last co-president of that organization before it kind of faded out. I also co-founded a group, political club called the Guillermo Vasquez Independent Democratic Club of Queens, Vasquez with two Z's, V-A-Z-Q-U-E-Z, -E um, in uh, 2002. Sadly, that political club only lasted about two years as well, but uh, both the Vasquez, uh, the Guillermo, GVID as we call it, the Guillermo Vasquez Independent Democratic Club of Queens and Outpac Pack did actually have an impact during their brief lives. And I think Iban QKNY did as well. Um, so I have a question. You've done a lot of work to organize, um, or to, to organize and create space for LGBT um, Asian Americans. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what are some of the issues in your experience that um, these communities face and why it's important for them to have their, their own space. Well, I think LGBT queer APIs face um, 
challenges, some of which they have in common with other uh, communities of color, others of which are more unique. Um, I think the diversity of the queer API community is both a strength and a challenge um, because we don't all speak Asian. <laughs> uh, there's not one language that all Asians speak, and it's not Chinese either. Um, so uh, within the community, not only is there a startling diversity of cultures of origin from the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, I mean, to give you an example, while in the United States most people th think of East Asians when they think the term Asian, in the UK, I lived in London for two years, uh, people j first think of South Asians, right? And uh, both the East Asian and South Asian populations are incredibly diverse. Uh, there are over 700 languages spoken on the Indian subcontinent alone, right? So there's incredible diversity of language, of culture, of religion, of class, uh, and also, uh, interestingly enough, of sexual orientation and gender identity. I developed a presentation a few years ago, uh, which is a very long and academic title, um, Proto-Transgenderal and Homoerotic Traditions in Pre-Modern Asian and Pacific Islander Societies, which sounds like the title of a dissertation. Uh, it's not nearly that long, and it's much more readable. But it's uh, basically meant to be about a half an hour long presentation on um, pre-LGBT identities, pre-20th century uh, queer identities and practices in the Asia-Pacific region uh, before the 20th century. And one of the important points about um, the queer API community uh, is, in my view, the need to uh, re-articulate queer API identity or identities in a way that is not part of the dominant discourse within the LGBT community, which is very much uh, articulated by gay white men, non-transgendered or cisgendered gay white men. And um, the important point there is that queer APIs all too often, if they come out at all as LGBT, it's within the LGBT community, the dominant uh, the white dominant LGBT community. So all too often, other Asians, and uh, this is very true in Asian immigrant communities in the U.S., and the queer APIs themselves often articulate and understand their LGBT identities in ways that are very much part of the, the white dominant discourse within the LGBT community in the United States. So one project that I've had, which is um, uh, expressed in some ways through this presentation, is to attempt to help educate queer APIs as well as others who are non-LGBT or non-Asian about this very long history of people that we would call LGBT or queer in pre-modern Asian and Pacific Islander societies. Uh, so that we're not viewed 
as foreigners within both Asian ethnic communities uh, and also within the white dominant uh, LGBT community in the United States. Uh, one of the challenges that Gapimni and Q-Wave, which is the group for queer women and trans folk, and SALGA, the South Asian Lesbian Gay Association, face, and that Iban QKNY faced, is the fact that any queer API group in this country will really be serving two rather distinct constituencies. One is more recent immigrants for whom English is not their first language, and the other is English-speaking Asian Americans. Uh, and those two groups have rather uh, different needs in many ways. And uh, when I was coordinator of Iban QKNY, that very much came to the fore. One of the things that we tried to do for a while was to have uh, bilingual meetings, which meant that the meetings were twice as long, because everything had to be said in both English and Korean. And the balance would tend to shift from meeting to meeting. One meeting might have more Korean speakers, and one meeting might have more English speakers. Right? And so uh, that was a challenge. And there was also the gender challenge. I mean, Iban Kyukenwai was um, multi-gendered. Um, and that was a challenge because both in Korea and in other Asian societies, there is a considerable sex segregation, particularly in childhood and youth. Uh, boys and girls are often virtually raised separately in some ways. And so there's a challenge bringing together gay men, lesbians, bisexuals, people who don't identify with the binary, genderqueer folk, uh, even if they may have a common ethnicity. Um, so I think that's a distinct challenge. Um, I was born in Korea but adopted by European American parents, so I never learned to speak Korean. I'm studying it now. But um, because of that, I've never felt in a position really to talk to Korean language media. I have on occasion, but uh, they generally want Korean speakers or people who are perfectly bilingual. And so that's always, uh, that's a challenge there. Uh, I will mention what was one of the, one of the great experiences of the last few years, which was I went back to Korea uh, in June and July 2015, for the first time since I was adopted at the age of seven and a half months old. I always put back in quotes because it sounds odd given that I have no memories of the country from my earliest days because I was seven and a half months old when I came here uh, to the U.S. But in any case, I went back to Korea in June and July 2015. I had four speaking engagements uh, and the biggest was the Queer Korea Festival Seoul Pride Parade. I was invited to speak um, at the festival. There they do the festival before the parade or the march, uh, which is the reverse of most uh, parades in American cities. And uh, I've spoken to big audiences before, but that was by far the largest. It was uh, 
the crowd was estimated to be over 35,000 people. And it was the largest event in the history of the queer community uh, in Korea up until that point. Uh, the only one larger was the, the festival and parade the following year in June 2016. And it was a fantastic experience. Um, I had three other speaking engagements. One was a very uh, a, a small meeting with a new transgender advocacy call, project called Chogakpo, which means patchwork quilt. Another was a meeting attended by over 50 people that was hosted by the Hangsungin, which is the leading LGBT advocacy organization in Korea. Um, I think their title is usually rendered in English as Solidarity for LGBT Human Rights in Korea. Um, and the fourth speaking engagement was with uh, the Palestine Peace and Solidarity Group in South Korea, where I gave a presentation on my participation in the first U.S. LGBTQ delegation tour. Uh, of Palestine back in January 2012, which we went on together. And that was really exciting. It was great to uh, get to know the Palestine Solidarity activists in Korea who have their own specific and unique challenges. Uh, there were about 35 people in attendance, which they said was a really good turnout there. Um, from what they tell me, it's very difficult to get Koreans interested in Israel-Palestine as an issue. Uh, in general, the Korean news media are focused almost exclusively on East Asia, South Korea, North Korea, Japan, China. Mm -hmm. And they might report on what goes on in the U.S. as well, particularly in the Korean-American community. But uh, the Middle East... Uh, you know, Israel-Palestine is a faraway country of which most Koreans know very little. Um, and uh, in fact, apparently the Korean activists were telling me that when they talk about Palestine, there's a lot of confusion because uh, sometimes Koreans will say, are you talking about Pakistan? Also, there's confusion because there are a lot of uh, sort of love hotels that have the word palace in them. So if they say we're having a meeting about Palestine, uh, Koreans might think they're talking about a love motel. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Palestine, the Different love motel of the Middle East, right? Exactly. I mean, um. It sort of is. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to just ask a question. When you were in Korea as a, as a trans woman, what can you tell me a little bit what it was like to meet other trans women who grew up in Korea, and what, are, what was that experience like for you? Well, meeting other trans women there was fantastic. Um, there aren't a lot. It's still extremely difficult to be openly LGBT, uh, and it's far more difficult being openly transgender than being openly gay. Um, until recently, most trans women were, as in most countries, unfortunately, were really either closeted or uh, largely confined to the sex industry in some fashion because of pervasive discrimination. 
um, I met a transgender activist there who actually was working in the construction industry. Doesn't get more butch than that, right? Uh, she had served in the military. Um, all young men are required to serve two years of military service uh, in the Republic of Korea. Um, but she finally just felt a desperate need to live her authentic life. So she actually came out to her parents, which is a really big thing to do. And her parents are relatively accepting, and uh, so she's transitioned. But there's only a very small number, a handful of openly transgendered women in, in, uh, in Korea, and even fewer trans men. Um, it was great connecting with them. Uh, it made me think of my own um, story in some ways, uh, because the truth is, when I was adopted in 1961, Korea was still uh, the poorest or one of the two or three poorest countries on earth. And as an orphan, my prospects for social advancement were probably close to zero anyway. But even now, it's difficult in 2017, but growing up queer in Korea in the 1960s and 70s, what prospect would there have been, really? Which is not to suggest that um, life has been just a bowl of cherries here in the U.S. either, uh, facing um, considerable racial animus as well as homophobia and transphobia here in the U.S. But I do think I probably had many more opportunities here, despite the challenges of uh, having grown up in a, um, in a Christian fundamentalist family on the all-white south side of Milwaukee. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, growing up in Milwaukee, give me a sense of what you know, sense of that place for you as a child? Well, you know, it's funny because Milwaukee was one of the most segregated cities in the country and one of the least diverse when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s. I'm now living in Jackson Heights, which demographers have determined may well be the most diverse spot on planet Earth. So I've gone from one extreme to another. Um, I uh, was adopted by European-American parents. Uh, my father was second-generation Norwegian. My mother was uh, fourth-generation German-American. Um, for one thing, and our, uh, my brother and I were adopted together, and our grandmother was our third parent. Um, one difference was frankly the age difference because they were my parents were considerably older than the parents of most of my peers growing up um, my mother was born in uh, 1916 she'd be 101 if she were alive today my father was born in 1912 and my grandmother who was in many ways as much our parent, as our father was, was born in 1888. So I was raised partly by someone who was born in the 19th century. So maybe that gives me a slightly different perspective in and of itself. Um, 
my parents were uh, not just Sunday Christians. They really were true believers. They were true Christian fundamentalists. And um, so coming out of that background also gives me a maybe a different perspective on what's going on in contemporary U.S. politics from friends who grew up in more liberal households, in more diverse communities than I did. Um, my parents were rock-ribbed Republicans. My mother once said the only mistake she ever made in her life was voting for FDR in 1932, <laughs> which she did um, as an act of rebellion against her parents. <laughs> uh, my father and mother met during World War II. Uh, my father served in, uh, in Europe in World War II. He saw combat. And uh, he was in the U.S. Third Army in a battalion which helped liberate three concentration camps. Uh, I did a little research recently and found out that I found out the names of the three camps. And one of them was actually a subcamp of Buchenwald, which is one of the two Nazi concentration camps that I actually visited when I was uh, living in Germany. I visited uh, Buchenwald and Dachau. And um, I think one of the things that really informs my work is both that historical perspective and also the importance of understanding that one form of oppression or um, one genocide can't possibly justify another. Um, so I think on the one hand, we have to uh, remember the Holocaust, but we have to understand the lessons of the Holocaust, the real lessons. Um, and at the same time, not only remember the Nakba, but recognize that Nakba is an ongoing process. The ethnic cleansing of historic Palestine is continuing to this day. Um, and uh, we see the ethnic cleansing of East Jerusalem, as well as the West Bank and the genocide, in, uh, the incremental genocide in Gaza, as um, uh, a noted Israeli historian calls it. So. I think, and growing up, reading history was my favorite thing. Uh, books and maps and atlases were a big thing growing up. I mean, we did have, my brother and I did have a few toys that were a little bit more gendered. Our parents would not obviously buy us Barbie dolls or anything, you know, feminine identified. So we got G.I. Joes and Matchbox cars and, you know, boy toys, right? Um, did you want more feminine toys? Or? I, not so much the toys. Uh, my cousin had a pair of glittery uh, 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 high heel shoes. They're like little play shoes, princess shoes. And when I went over, we went over to her house, uh, I would uh, try them on when no one was in the room, right? Uh, so I did kind of covet her glittery princess shoes. But I wasn't so much, the toys, 
I wasn't so much into feminine, stereotypically feminine toys or the whole princess thing. Uh, my brother and I would play with Legos. We had a lot of kind of not gender, not very gendered toys. And I think uh, maps were my favorite thing. I'm, I'm super into it. And if anyone follows me on Facebook uh, or Pinterest, I, I post maps every day, fascinated by maps. And history, I read more history than anything else. Um, so, but growing up, it, it was it was interesting. I mean, my brother and I were the only non-white children, not only in our family, but in our grade school and uh, uh, in the neighborhood as well. And can you talk to me a little bit about, you know, what it was like to have parents who, you know, you've described as being so conservative adopt to Korean children. What, what was that? What was that? Well, you that know, sense my parents had very little formal education. My mother had to drop out of high school at the age of 16 because she had nephritis. She lost one kidney. And she was basically, she had significant disabilities all of her adult life. And my father only had one year of college, but it wasn't even really, it, it was kind of like a vocational school, really. So neither of them had much formal education. My mother came from a, a very poor working class family. My father's family was just barely lower middle class. Um, his parents had emigrated from Norway in 1883 and 1887. And his father had had a variety of different jobs. None of them were exactly what we would call professional. Uh, he was an insurance salesman at one point, for example, uh, my paternal grandfather. My father, he w uh, my father was technically management, but he never made a lot of money. Um, so you were more working class? We were, well, like we were on the cusp of working class and lower middle class. And even within our family, we really grew up with our mother's family. My father's family was very small and was in Chicago. And uh, our mother had an older brother and three younger sisters. And of her, of her siblings, I would say that her brother ended up very middle upper middle class. He was the only really prominent member of the family. He, actually, he was a minister and then he became a judge. Um, but my other my mother's other sisters, two of them I describe as middle middle class and one was very working class. She married a very working class man and so our family was really on the cusp of working class and middle class. Um, our mother's background was very middle class. She grew up very poor. And as I say, my father's family was just barely lower middle class, um, even if his sisters had pretensions to more bourgeois status. Um, and when our father died, I was um, 12 going on 13, and uh, it really plunged us into poverty, so we spent our teen years in in a kind of a genteel poverty. We were basically living off 
Social Security survivor benefits. Um, and uh, our mother and grandmother um, had Social Security, and our mother had veterans benefits from our father's service in World War II. So we didn't really have the bourgeois um, niceties that uh, and the advantages that many of our peers did. Our our neighborhood was sort of lower middle class, sort of borderline mid, middle middle class, and um, the only the only bourgeois luxury we really had growing up was. Um, was um, private piano lessons. Uh, there was a sort of stereotypical piano lady teacher in our neighborhood that we went to. Fortunately, she was really good. She was really good. And so even though the lessons were pretty cheap, um, we, my brother and I had a really firm foundation for piano. So I actually revived my uh, pianism uh, Ten years ago, after not having played for twenty-five years, and I even recorded a CD. Uh, mm -hmm. You have my CD, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah I do. Yeah. That's nice. And um, and that's one of my greatest joys, actually, music. Um, uh, so, I think I think it was you know when I look back on it, I think yeah, it is kind of strange that. Um, I had this background, and here I am, identifying as an openly transgendered woman, uh, doing progressive, even radical activism here in New York, living in Jackson Heights, and I grew up in this Christian fundamentalist household in a white neighborhood on the south side of Milwaukee. Um, I went back to Milwaukee a few years ago for my 35th high school anniversary, um, reunion, and it was the first time I'd seen most of my classmates since I graduated in 1978. Um, and what was interesting about it was most of my classmates from the class of 78 stayed in Milwaukee or southeastern Wisconsin. Um, and I've gone the furthest, both geographically and I think in every other respect, too. Uh, I think if I if they'd had a, uh, an, a a contest for most changed, I probably would have won it. <laughs> and how how was it for you? You know, why did you want to go back to the reunion, and what? How was it for you to be there? Why was that important for you? Well, other than my brother and two uh, classmates who are now openly gay men, one lives in. Uh, Wisconsin, one lives in Washington, D.C. Um, I'd met up with only four other classmates, four uh, women who were in my class, class of 78, uh, several years ago. This was um, over 10 years ago. Um, but just briefly, uh, four of them on one occasion and one of them a second time uh, but in Chicago but um, other than them I'd actually not seen any of my classmates since 1978 
you know, for 35 years. And to be perfectly frank, I was just curious to see if the football players were all fat and bald, you know, the usual thing, right? And... <laughs> and were they? <laughs> a few of them. A few of the cheerleaders, too. <laughs> but but um, it, was, it was strange and unsettling, but also kind of wonderful in a way. It was kind of my coming out to my class, because I, as I say, except for a handful of them, I had not had any contact with them. And most of them were very nice. I, one uh, woman there told me that she'd heard someone make a snide comment about me. But other than that secondhand report, um, people were perfectly nice. Uh, I had there had been previous reunions; had been a, I think a tenth and a twentieth, but I hadn't gone to them. Um, so, to be perfectly frank, it was as much to satisfy my own curiosity. And some people were actually extremely supportive. Um, I think what struck me, I mean. I haven't really kept in touch with most of them since then. I mean, I friended some of them on Facebook, and we've had a little contact on Facebook, but uh, I haven't seen any of my classmates since then. Um, this was a few years ago. And um, it's interesting, the passage of time. Um, what struck me, and I don't say this with any sense of Pride, but I was struck by how different my life is from theirs because most of them really are li living rather bourgeois and heteronormative lives that are not that different from their parents. I mean, they may be on social media, right? Uh, they may have Facebook and Twitter accounts, but how different are they from their parents? Probably not that different. Whereas my life is totally different from my parents. Um, I've lived abroad. I've traveled. Um, I lived in Europe for three years. Uh, so, and, and I'm an activist. None of them are involved with activism or politics in any way, as far as I know. Um, so I think that's what struck me. Um, I went back uh, to the old house that I grew up in. My brother and I call it the old house. Um, and it's interesting because if you grow up in a house, uh, you live in a house from the age of seven and a half months till just before you turn 18. But you don't set foot in that house for... Um, you know, over 25 years, the first time you go back, it's a rather intense experience. Um, and the first thing I was struck by, frankly, was how small it was. Because when we were growing up, I was thought, it's, oh, this big house. But I went back and I thought, oh, wow, this is a little doll's house, you know. But I've grown up a little bit since then, you know. When you're two feet high, it looks much bigger than you know, when you're five, six, right? Uh, and I went back um, with Larry Tung uh, for a film that he made about my life and work. Um, 
and he since made a second film uh, and that second film is about my trip back to Korea in 2015 and so both the films required me to speak on camera about my past which compels one to reflect on one's um, one's life in a way that's rather um, that's rather interesting and um, I don't regret any of the experiences that I've had because I've learned a huge amount from all of them and um, so for me it's been a process of um, growth and change um, there are things one doesn't anticipate in life I mean I, I always knew I was transgendered but I didn't know exactly how I would actualize that gender identity um, but you I knew as a child oh yeah I knew from the age of four I've, I've always known um, but knowing and doing something about it are two different things. Um, when when you had that awareness as a child, how did you make sense of it, or how did you deal with it, I guess, and especially as an adolescent? Well, I think I was precocious enough to know that it wasn't something I could discuss with my family. Um, and so on the relatively rare occasions when I was home alone and it was pretty rare when the rest of the family was out I might have been sick on a, a few occasions and not gone to church otherwise we we're always expected in church our father was an elder in the church and we actually had to sit in the in the, the, the front pew one of the two front pews so we we're always kind of on display um, I would uh, on a few rare occasions I would sneak into my mother's closet and try on her clothes but they didn't fit me I was this you know small Asian child and she was this uh, stout German housefrau right um, so you know I would try on her moo's and her house dresses and uh, she was not a fashion plate um, but uh, so her pantyhose were the only thing that fit me actually um, so I knew that my core gender identity was feminine. Now the sexuality part really didn't happen until I turned 12. Um, and then puberty hit and all that. Uh, I think, you know, some children are more sexual than others, but I think before the age of 12, I, I'm not sure there was a sexuality. There was definitely gender identity. But then during adolescence, sexuality kind of superseded gender identity for several years. Um, and in any case, it was much easier to come out as gay than it was as transgendered back then and it is today, but it was certainly was back then. I should mention that in my junior high and high school, there was no such thing as being openly gay. I remember in junior high, there was one boy who was rather feminine who was always being bullied. And that was not something that one wanted. Now, I was occasionally bullied as well because I was extremely feminine. But I tended to try to keep my head down, bury myself in books, and also 
uh, music. My brother and I uh, studied violin as well as piano. We got um, violin lessons at school. Uh, the Milwaukee Public School System at the time had a really good music program. And uh, we were um, in the orchestra and the chamber orchestra in junior high and high school. And we also played in a, uh, a youth orchestra, a citywide youth orchestra called uh, Music for Youth. And um, I also, my brother did not, but I actually started organ lessons. I had private organ lessons with an organist um, at another local church. Um, <laughs> it's funny to think back on it because I don't know if I realized when I started studying with him, but certainly years later it was clear to me that he was gay. And the funny thing is uh, my mother first wanted me to become a Lutheran minister, but then when that didn't pan out, then she thought about my being an organist, which is ironic. Um, little did she know that most organists are gay, right? Straight women and gay men, right? Just like librarians. And so my organ teacher was a bachelor, a confirmed bachelor, and um, was always delighted to see me, give me a lesson. And, um, and he was a brilliant organist, actually. Uh, he was a superb performer as well as a, as a really good teacher. Uh, I continued organ and piano lessons in college. Uh, I, uh, I stopped violin. I, was, I, I wasn't bad in the context of my junior high and high school orchestras, but you know I was no Yasha Heifetz. Um, and um, in any case, string technique never really came naturally to me. It's just not natural sticking a piece of wood under your neck and taking another piece of wood and sawing on it. Whereas piano, when you sit down at a keyboard, you're in a very natural posture, right? Um, I think when I was in high school, I had a very limited imagination when it came to careers. I could only think of two. One was in music and one was um, journalism. And uh, I had dreams and fantasies of becoming either a symphony violinist or a concert pianist. You know, now that I know what those are all about, I think it's probably a good thing I didn't pursue those. Uh, because so few people make it to the top, right? Um, and uh, I can play what I want as an amateur pianist in a way that a professional pianist can't. If you're a professional pianist, there's certain things that you have to do to advance your career. Um, so music is an, a great avocation uh, rather than a vocation. Uh, anyway, I went off to the University of Wisconsin-Madison and I declared as a pre-journalism major, but I switched majors when I discovered how totally insipid the other journalism majors were. Um, and uh, switched majors to philosophy, which was hardly the most practical vocational major, but it was really perfect for me. I'd always been interested in these big questions. I still am. The group that I've been a member of the longest is a group called the Philosophy Forum, which I actually coordinated for several years. 
um, which is an LGBT discussion group that meets in Manhattan and discusses philosophy. And um, I've been a member of that group since 1997. I've been a member of that group for 20 years. Um, so uh, in any case, I majored in philosophy. My senior year, I did a study abroad program in London uh, through the University of Wisconsin system. I absolutely fell in love with the city and stayed for a second year. Um, I applied to and was accepted by the London School of Economics and Political Science and did a master's there in European studies. Um, and that was fascinating. Uh, it was a challenge. Um, studying for the comprehensive exams and uh, writing the master's thesis were very big challenges for me. I really had to develop some discipline, which I, I, I had a degree of discipline as an undergrad, but not at that level. Uh, I wrote my master's thesis on French economic policy under the Mitterrand administration. Can I back up a little sure. bit and just ask you, you know, what was it like? Um, I know you did a lot of studying and you're obviously very passionate about certain subjects, but I'm wondering what was it like for you as a student? When you think about your student life at University of Wisconsin, Madison, what was it like to be, to be there? Did you well, it was fascinating. I mean, first of all, the University of Wisconsin-Madison is one of the great land-grant institutions of the U.S., uh, I hope it remains so, even if Scott Walker is, seems intent on destroying it, um, the Republican governor of Wisconsin. Um, I came out in my first semester as gay. Um, there were no openly transgender people on campus or in, in town. Um, there was a small but growing gay and lesbian community, mostly gay men with a smattering of lesbians. When you say you came out, did you come out to your peers, to your family, to, how did that? Uh, well, I came out to my brother, um, and then he came out to me later as gay. Uh, I did not come out to my family. That's kind of a very long story. Um, I, uh, I was pretty out as a student. Um, I had a, a, a few boyfriends. Um, successively, not at the same time, not simultaneously, um, and um, got involved with the local gay community there. It could not be called an LGBT community. There was no infrastructure on campus, as there is now. There was one little gay center, which was the uh, a volunteer project that was run by basically gay grad students, and they had a little office in the basement of the Episcopal Church across the street from campus, and one of the grad students ran a support group, which was mostly undergrads. Um, the university was enormous; it still is. There were, when I was there, there were over thirty-five thousand students. I think it was probably close to forty thousand students, and um, it was a fantastic experience in so many ways. For the, I mean, Madison is only 150,000 metro area, as opposed to Milwaukee, which is about 1.5 million metropolitan. But Milwaukee is very, you know, this white ethnic kind of 
blue collar town. It's like a gigantic small town. Uh, the the stereotype of Laverne and Shirley actually is not that far from the truth in some ways. Uh, whereas Madison, even though it's a tenth of the size, uh, Milwaukee is is actually quite diverse, both because of the university and the state capital. And um, it was an, an enormously liberating experience. Um, it was a great educational experience. And um, I was not political at the time. I had a boyfriend who was. Um, Can you tell me what you mean by that? I wasn't an activist and I wasn't involved with politics, but Madison has, a, has for a very long time, had a reputation as being a very political campus. It's called the Berkeley of the Midwest, and it was a hotbed of anti-war activism during the Vietnam War. Um, when I got to campus in August 78, the big issue on campus was the Shah of Iran. And there were demonstrations almost every day in the central square on campus against the Shah. Um, and I would observe them, uh, but I wasn't an activist or involved politically. My boyfriend or lover at the time was involved with um, gay activism and, in fact, actually helped lead the campaign for the gay rights bill uh, that was ultimately passed by the Wisconsin State Legislature, which is the first uh, gay rights law enacted by a state legislature in the country. Uh, so maybe a little bit of his political activism rubbed off on me in terms of many conversations, but I wasn't involved with any kind of activism at the time. Um, but uh, I just have to see if this person is coming for the group. Oh, okay. Or you have to run out the door. Um, and then LSE, the London School of Economics, is so international. Um, more than half the students when I was there, and it's true today, were non-British students. May I ask a question? Sure. Had you traveled outside of the U.S. before your time in London? Uh, I'd only been to Canada. I don't know if Western Canada no. counts. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> <laughs> um, so going to London, you know, this huge, enormous city of over 10 million people, which is enormously international and cosmopolitan. Did you uh, have culture shock? I did. I did. But maybe in a good way. Um, I uh, had a few boyfriends in succession. Um, and... Uh, it was it was an amazing experience in so many ways, and while I was not an activist there in London either, it was a political education in many ways. I was there from eighty one to eighty three, when Margaret Thatcher was the, at the height of her power. I was actually there uh, for the Falklands War, which took place in eighty two, summer of eighty two. Um, I actually saw Margaret Thatcher live once from a distance, uh, walking into Westminster Abbey. Um, and I followed politics very closely, British politics. I was there for the general election in 1983, when Margaret Thatcher won an enormous majority of over 100. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about what the atmosphere of London for you was like at that time? It was fantastic. Well, first of all, it, for the first time, I started to go out dressed as a woman in public. 
uh, which was one of the most liberating experiences I've ever had. Uh, this was my second year. I moved in with my then lover. That's a very 70s term, right? Um, lover, boyfriend, whatever. Nowadays, we'd say partner, which to me sounds like you're in business together, you know. But in any case, I was living with my then lover or boyfriend or partner in um, East Acton in West London. And I discovered a transgender support group, which was harder to do in those days because this was, you know, long before the Internet. So how did you find out about these things, right? But I discovered this support group that met at this kind of falling down row house called uh, London House. And I don't even know what they called it because this was long before the term transgender came into general use. Um, it might have been something about, you know, transvestites and transsexuals or something of that sort. But in any case, it was a small group of people, but it was it was it was really worthwhile. And we would occasionally go out afterwards for drinks at the Phil Beach Gardens Hotel, which is actually this very elegant hotel in Earl's Court. And uh, I remember one summer evening we sat in the garden of the Phil Beach Gardens Hotel, which was this. Uh, beautiful little garden uh, in the back of the hotel and um, but my lover did Bernard did not like it he you know he wanted a boy who was a boy not a boy who was a girl and uh, so I could only persuade him to go out with me dressed once went to the opera um, and he was so freaked out at the possibility that someone might recognize him, that I might be rad. I didn't have any problems with, you know, the ladies' room or anything. But he was freaked out over the possibility. Um, what was that like for you? Was that the first relationship where you, where you were fully who you are? Well, I mean, the thing I, the thing was, I wasn't. I was only, I was only who I was in terms of my gender identity on the side. In terms of our relationship, we had a complicated relationship, a very complicated relationship. Um, the, two, the two big relationships I've had in my life were all very early. <laughs> um, first was David, who was the, the gay activist in Madison, and that was from um, 79 to 81. And then there was Bernard, in 82-83 in London uh, and he was the only man I lived with um, we had a lot in common um, we were both big opera queens I was uh, you know to this day my brother still refers to my two years in London as the thousand and one nights at the opera implying I did nothing else but I did see a lot of theater and opera when I was in London hear music because you know London London rivals New York is the you know the world capital of music and theater and opera um, and back then they had really cheap student tickets to English National Opera at the Coliseum for a pound you know a dollar fifty um, same thing at the Royal Opera House Covent Garden and you know I saw amazing I saw some, you know, uh, some not so great stuff 
too, but I saw, you know, Placido Domingo uh, singing La Fanchula del West, you know, for example. Um, great Shakespeare at the Royal Shakespeare, the Royal Shakespeare Company Productions at the Barbican Theatre. Um, so London was an astonishing, you know, having grown up on the south side of Milwaukee, you know, having only been to the theater once uh, to see a production of A Christmas Carol at the Pabst Theater when I was a senior in high school. It's part of a trip, right? Um, my, my parents had very little formal education, and so they weren't really into the arts. They weren't into, you know, painting or theater. The one art form which was very acceptable, which was actually encouraged in the Lutheran Church, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, was music. Uh, Martin Luther considered music uh, the spark of the divine, so that was the officially sanctioned art form, right? Because it was connected with church and hymn singing and glorification of God and all that kind of stuff. Um, I didn't get into uh, painting and the visual arts until I went to London. Um, I took the only course I've ever had in art history, which was a course in modern art history, uh, with a professor from one of the other UW campuses, and it totally opened my eyes to painting, which I'd never really been exposed to. I mean, my parents had one or two sort of paintings on the wall, but they weren't, they weren't, you know, Matisse or anything. They weren't clowns on black velvet, but, you know, uh, <laughs> they weren't Jan van Eyck either. Um, and uh, so I, with regard to art, I kind of worked my way backwards from Picasso and the high moderns back to, you know, the Gothic and what have you, and then became very interested in Asian art as well. Uh, so London was a, a, an extraordinary experience. I, so I came back from London in 83, October 83, moved in with my brother, uh, lived with him in Chicago for five years. Uh, for those years, I worked in public relations, which was my first career. Um, and were you, what was that like going from London to Chicago? And were you, um, you know, on the gender level, were you living in the way that that's aligned with? No, I kind of, I kind of went back in the tranny closet. I had this, um, and this is not uncommon either. I kind of convinced myself, persuaded myself that that was a phase that I'd gone through. And so after my first few months back in Chicago, I put all my dresses and my gowns into a um, steamer trunk uh, and pushed them into the closet. Um, I was still openly gay, which in and of itself was actually pretty gutsy for you know, 1984, basically, 33 years ago. Um, I worked for two public relations agencies, a university. I worked for one year for the American Bar Association, the ABA, and the president's office. Uh, and that was an education in another way. Feel free to come on in, April. Hi, I'm just finishing an interview. You're welcome to hear it. Uh, and I uh, worked, uh, I mean, I think I learned a huge amount, uh, and I don't regret it at all because it was really an education in 
what corporate America is all about. I learned a lot of specific skills, some of which I use to this day. Some of the media relations things, for example. Um, uh, but I decided after you know four years of that, um, helping large corporations enhance their uh, public images was not life fulfilling for me. So I decided to go for my PhD. I went down to University of uh, Illinois at Urbana-Champaign to do my PhD in political science. Uh, spent uh, five years, well, I was there from 88 to 94, but one of those years was in Europe. Now, during this time, you know, um, HIV is becoming part of the public discourse and gay people are gaining some kind of visibility. I'm wondering, were you, you said you kind of went back in the closet, at least on the gender level, um, but I'm wondering, oops, I'm wondering, were in those years in Chicago, were you, were you, um, you know, were you part of any gay communities? Were you did were you part of any sort of like gay life, however you want to think well, of that? Well, yeah. I mean, the one group I was a member of was this group called uh, Asians and Friends Chicago. So w that was the period that you were Right, right. And uh, although that was before the three gay Asians who I met at the conference here in New York in June 94 were members. So I didn't meet them at that point. I met them in 94, but, um, so I was a member of this group, which was, you know, not only apolitical, it was kind of anti-political in a way, you know? Um, I was not an activist, I mean, I was following politics, and um, the AIDS crisis was in full swing. Um, I was lucky in that uh, I managed to stay uh, negative, but uh, two of my boyfriends actually died of AIDS. Yeah, one of them. During one, that period. Yeah, one of them, uh, who was boy my first boyfriend in London, Stephen, uh, died of AIDS uh, when I was living in Chicago. I only found out through a, a mutual friend. And then um, I had a boyfriend, an American, um, in Paris when I, I lived in Paris in the spring of '92. Um, who died of AIDS a few years later. Uh, he moved back to Oklahoma with his mother, basically to die. And uh, so that was, you know, that was very sad and shocking, but it wasn't surprising since so many gay men were dying of AIDS during the 80s. Um, and as someone who, you know, is in relationships with men and your brother also come out to you. What was it like to be living in that? You know, tell me a little bit about what that was like to be living in Chicago at that time. Well, Chicago at and that, that point. in your particular context. Right. At that point, Chicago was not hit quite as hard as New York. That would come a little bit later. But it certainly, you know, the AIDS crisis was certainly significant at that point. Um, I had a number of friends who were uh, HIV positive and who were out, who were openly HIV positive, um, who were involved with AIDS activism, some of them. Um, 
a lot of the organ community organizing in the LGBT community was around HIV AIDS. It was, you know, I mean, it, it was something that you had to think about. I mean, dating, you had to think about it. Um, having sex, you had to think about what safe sex meant. Um, uh, you know, condom usage became um, pretty de rigueur at that point. Um, it was, fortunately, I mean, I, I was very saddened by the death of these uh, two former boyfriends, but fortunately, it didn't touch me quite as directly. I didn't have um, close friends who died of AIDS at that time. Um, it was a, it was a strange period in a way. I mean, this was you know morning in America, Reagan's. Uh, it was a very you know it was a whole Reagan era and very corporate. And I was trying my best to fit in to corporate America as you know. And it's funny to say because I never thought of myself as a man, but that was how I was gendered, right? And um, it was the it was kind of almost the last gasp of that. I was like, you know, to try harder, but but uh, but uh, it never quite worked. I always felt a little bit like an act. I always felt like I was. I always felt a little bit theatrical, right? Having to put a on a suit and tie, which I hated. Um, And so that was a that was a very it was a very strange period, but it was also and there was a lot of good stuff that happened to me during that period as well. Um, and at this time, you also I don't know if this was the case in well maybe I should ask you um, in when you were in college and in London, you know, did you seek community with other Asian Americans at that time? Having grown up in such a an Anglo. Well, the funny thing was when I was at LSE, I actually joined the Korean Students Association. But I didn't speak a word of Korean, and so I'd go to the meetings, and they'd all be in Korean, and they'd all be you know chatting chatting away, and I'd be sitting there wondering what they're talking about. They were very nice to me, I and mean, they embraced me, uh, took me to their bosom like a long lost cousin. Um, but, um, and there weren't a lot of Korean students, there were tons of Chinese students, ethnic Chinese from, particularly from Hong Kong, Malaysia, and Singapore. Just tons of Chinese from Hong Kong, Malaysia, and Singapore. But the Korean student population was pretty small. Um, but other than that, you know, I was, I was. In Chicago, you said. Oh, in Chicago, right, right. Too. So exactly, I was just wondering, yeah. you know, what. You know, you're, co you're kind of coming back, going back into the closet a little bit. There's this climate that is, you know, things are a little scary. Um, and I'm wondering, that's a moment that you start to sort of connect with Asian APIs. Yes, in a, a limited, in a limited way, but I don't think, you know, I don't think I really came to consciousness until grad school. And it wasn't towards the end. So I was in grad school from 80, August 88 until... Um, I guess May 94. I, I actually uh, defended my dissertation in um, December 93, but I stayed on campus because of the academic schedule um, 
for spring semester 94, and I took a graduate pro-seminar in political theory, which was not one of my subfields. My subfields were international relations and comparative politics. Um, but it, it was really quite an eye-opener. We read a whole bunch of theorists, but the one who grabbed me was Foucault. So I went through this huge Foucauldian period. And really, Foucault did really help me disentangle all these identity complexes I'd grown up with because it really helped me uh, rethink these binary oppositions. For example, of man, woman, um, uh, Caribbean, American, right? So what I came to realize, thinking through all this, both through personal experience and reading Foucault was that I'd set up these binary oppositions that were false dichotomies. That I could think of myself as a woman, albeit one who was male-bodied and who didn't have some experiences that some women have. For example, uh, menstruation, which is one that I don't particularly want to have. Or I thought you were going to say voting for Hillary. <laughs> That's also an experience I've never had. <laughs> uh, right. Um, but, uh, and never will have, and never hope to have. Um, but, but, uh, but um, you know, it's interesting to me because it helped me disentangle these mm -hmm. binary oppositions. So to me, sex and gender are two very different things. Um, and being male-bodied and identifying as a woman, to me, are not at least a bit contradictory. And I sometimes shock other trans people by, uh, I'll occasionally refer to myself as a male-bodied woman, uh, which really shocks them because for a lot of people, it's very important for them to align their anatomy and biology with their gender identity. Um, and that's great if they want to do that, if that's their path. But for me, gender identity and physical embodiment are very different things. And similarly, with regard to racial, ethnic, national identity, I came to realize that um, there was this binary opposition of real Korean versus fake Korean that I'd been thinking through, which denied the authenticity of my experience as a Korean adoptee, that I had a distinct identity I, uh, as a Korean adoptee coming out of distinct experiences, having been born in Korea, raised in the U.S. in a white household, but obviously having Asian physiognomy and therefore being read as Asian in some sense. And um, going back to Korea, um, back in June, July 2015, actually helped bring that whole process full circle. Um, being in Korea, it's funny because I have one friend, uh, a gay white man, who asked me when I came back, did you feel particularly Korean when you were in Korea? I said, actually, I've never felt less Korean. But that didn't bother me, really. It was sort of, it was more important for me to see the land of my birth, and uh, feeling somewhat déraciné, as the French would say, uprooted, um, and never feeling entirely home anywhere, and feeling 
that home is always, in some ways, in a certain sense, kind of an abstraction. And um, in some ways, that has given me a certain feeling for other peoples, the Palestinian people in particular, although my experience obviously is totally different from Palestinians living under a brutal occupation in the West Bank, uh, but the sense of feeling displaced and dispossessed. Uh, and of course, Korea actually did suffer 40 years of a foreign military occupation, um, which is only ended by the end of World War I. Um, but this feeling of never quite being at home anywhere Come on in. Hi. Hi. Um, this is part two of the oral history interview with uh, Pauline Park. I'm at Queen's Pride House again. It's April 13th, uh, 2017. And this uh, oral history is part of the um, New York Trans Oral History Project. And we're trying to collects uh, the stories of, of um, trans and gender nonconforming uh, people throughout New York. Um, so uh, in part one, we had you know, covered quite a bit of ground uh, regarding your biography and, and this sort of thing. And we sort of left off in, uh, in your time in Chicago. And so just following the, you know, our discussion uh, before starting, if you could give some you know some some key dates in in your life, um, maybe some some key events, and that might be be helpful to sort of pick up into what we were talking about. Okay, so I'll start with about a dozen or so dates that will help create a chronology for people to follow my uh, long and winding journey <laughs> through life. So I was born in. October 1960. I uh, left Korea and was adopted. Uh, I left Korea in May uh, 1961. Um, was adopted in June and grew up in Milwaukee. I uh, graduated high school in May uh, 1978, went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison in August 1978. I moved to London in August 1981, lived there two years until October 1983. When I came back to the U.S., moved in with my brother in Chicago, I lived there until August 1988 when I started my PhD uh, program at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I finished my dissertation in, 1990, in December 1994, but stayed on campus uh, until the summer of 1995. Within that time period, I lived in Champaign-Urbana 
except for two months when I was in Berlin in September and October 1990, and then a year in 1991-92, I spent six weeks in Regensburg in Bavaria in the summer of 1991, moved to Brussels, lived there for five months in the fall of 1991, then moved down to Paris in January 92, and lived there through June, and then moved, uh, came back to the U.S., spent uh, some time in Chicago, then moved back down to Champaign-Urbana in August 92, and as I say, then finished my dissertation. My dissertation defense was actually in December 1994. And in August 95, I moved up to Lake Forest in the suburbs of Chicago, where I had a year-long teaching position and then moved to New York in 95, in August 95. Um, I drove from Lake Forest to Staten Island, making several stops along the way, and in, including Syracuse and Aurora upstate, where I had friends who were living there. And I taught um, at Wagner College in fall 95, spring semester 96, and fall semester 90, no, fall 95, spring 96, and fall 96. Uh, I left Wagner, I moved from Staten Island to Queens in January 1997. Uh, I moved to the apartment that I still live in here in Jackson Heights co-founded Queen's Pride House in January 97, as well as Iban Queer Koreans of New York, which I led from 1997 until May 99. I co-founded Niagara, the New York Association for Gender Rights Advocacy, in um, June 1998. We started the campaign for the New York City Transgender Rights Law shortly thereafter, really starting in November 98. Um, my formal coming out as a public uh, figure was in February 2000 when we had a press conference on the steps of City Hall announcing the campaign for the bill, which was introduced in June um, 2000, and was ultimately enacted, passed by the City Council April 24th, 2002, signed into law by the Mayor on April 30th, 2002. Um, a few other dates. I served as the first openly transgendered Grand Marshal of the New York City LGBT Pride March in June 2005, which was a great honor. I um, I went to Romania for three weeks uh, in the summer of 2005. In the 
in January 2012, I went on the first U.S. LGBTQ delegation tour of Palestine, a historic event. The other big trip that I've taken since then was in June and July 2015, the first time since I left Korea in 1961 that I've been back, and I spent four weeks, uh, the last two weeks of June, the first two weeks of July, uh, during the course of which I spoke at the Queer Korea Festival Seoul Pride Parade, um, at the end of June 2015, which was the largest event in the history of the LGBT community of Korea, I was uh, what you might call the guest keynote speaker. And I gave three other presentations um, in July. I became executive director of Queen's Pride House. Oh, I was elected... The, uh, I was elected president of the board of directors of Queen's Pride House in July 2010. I returned to the board of Queen's Pride House in April 2010, was elected president in July 2010, became executive director in May 2012, stepped down as executive director in July 2015, and am planning a trip, to my first trip to Norway, which will be in June of this year. So those are a bunch of dates to throw out. I'm sure some others will come up, but those will help orient people to the time frame of, of, of my life to date. Thank you for that extensive <laughs> chronology. I'm trying to uh, keep in mind certain points um, that certain questions that I have uh, from that. I think it might make more sense, uh, at least for me as, um, as an interviewer, to just dial it back a little bit and ask some broad strokes kind of questions. <laughs> I think that might make sense given how detailed uh, personal chronology you just, you just gave. So it might overlap a teeny bit with part one, but uh, I think okay. I think that's okay. And we can double back and fill in details with Chicago. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I'll just say is that I tend to think of my life in terms of distinct periods mm -hmm. or chapters, and they are many of them are very geographically defined. So I talk about my Milwaukee period and mm -hmm. my Madison period and my London mm -hmm. period and my Chicago period, sort of like you know Picasso's blue period. <laughs> I was just going to say, I was just going to say the blue period, the pink period. That's right. But um, but I wasn't sure if that would be gauche or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I wanted to just ask again. Now, you had returned from London after, you know, your two after two years. And just to clarify, as I mentioned, the first year, the first academic year, I was a senior at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and we had faculty from several different UW campuses as part of the student abroad, uh, 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 study abroad program. And it was the first year of the study abroad program in London. So that was August through uh, August 
1981 through May 1982. I applied to the London School of Economics and Political Science and was accepted. And so that was academic year 1982 to 1983. Okay, thank you. Um, my question, you know, so you came back to Chicago. You're living with your brother. Um, in our, our previous interview, you said you sort of uh, went, went back into the closet uh, regarding your gender, gender identity. Gender identity. Um, but at the same time in the U.S., thinking of your life in terms of periods, um, you have the first HIV and um, AIDS cases and, and cases of activism. Um, and uh, we kind of touched on that a little bit, but I was just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what it was like to live at that time for you as, um, you know, as a trans woman and, you know, sort of uh, starting to come to terms with, with uh, how you wanted to live in the world at that time. I think the 1980s were a very interesting period this was all Reagan's morning in America, and so in some ways it was a rather conservative, even right-wing reactionary period in some respects. And so I spent a few years in the bowels of corporate America, and uh, it was an interesting experiment in some ways with making one last attempt to sort of play this role, this uh, gender normative role. Uh, I was still openly gay, which actually was at that time, you know, a pretty uh, out there thing to be, but I was in the process of trying to suppress my gender identity. Um, the AIDS crisis was in full bloom, and that was certainly, I think, topic number one in the LGBT community, in the gay male community. People didn't use the term LGBT at that time. Chicago was maybe less hard hit initially than New York or San Francisco. And I'd lived in London where certainly people were starting to be infected with HIV, but when I was living there from 81 to 83, it was not an epidemic at the time. Um, so I came back to the US, moved to Chicago, found that HIV-AIDS was very much uh, turning into a crisis and an epidemic. I found myself in a curious position in some ways because even though there was this crisis in the gay male community, I was actually in a fairly stable situation personally. I had my first professional position, so I was actually making money for the first time in a real way. I, uh, my salaries at these various jobs were not enormous by any means, but since my brother and I both had professional positions and we were sharing a one-bedroom apartment in Chicago, uh, we were uh, what some people categorized as dinks, dual income, no kids. And so we could afford to go to the supermarket 
and just pick stuff off the shelves without thinking twice about it. We were by no means living in the lap of luxury. We spent four years living in what they call a four plus one. Um, and four plus ones are somewhat notorious for being rather ugly and shoddily constructed. But our building, though not well built, was it was clean and well maintained. And we lived in Lakeview East. Some people uh, started to call it Boys Town. At the time I was living in it, People called it Newtown. That was sort of the that was the lingo at the time. Now people call it Boys Town or something else. Uh, real estate agents like to call it Belmont Harbor, which sounds very exclusive. Uh, there is actually a little harbor with boats. We didn't have a boat. Um, we would sometimes go jogging, running past the harbor along the lakefront, which was very nice. Um, so I had four different jobs. My first one was working for Daniel J. Edelman, which is a major public relations firm. Um, I worked there from, I think, January, February 1984 until the summer of 85 when I jumped ship and went to Burson Marsteller, which is actually the largest public relations agency in the world. And I was there for a year and a half. Then. I went on to the American Bar Association, was there for a year, and then went on to Loyola University Public Relations Department, and I was there for a year. Um, it was all a very interesting experience. I'll just preface it by mentioning the fact that I had the worst job of my entire life for about um, two months in, uh, I think it was December, November, December, early January, at, uh, in the Law Library of Northwestern University, the project office where I spent several hours a day using little hot irons ironing labels off of and onto book spines because the library transitioned from Dewey Decimal to Library of Congress. And the only thing that saved my sanity was that there were several other people doing the same thing and we got to chat all day while we're doing this really dismal, grubby little job. Um, public relations was something that I fell into. I was talking to a friend of my brother's who had gone to the Middle School of Journalism at Nor Northwestern and done an MSJ in journalism with him. And I had thought about journalism as a career. Oddly enough, in high school, the only two careers I could imagine were journalism and music. I had a rather limited imagination when it came to careers. Of course, transgender activist was not in any of those books uh, in my high school library about careers along with, you know, firefighter or truck driver or nurse, right? LGBT activist was not in one of those books. Um, in any case, uh, because the job market in journalism was really extremely competitive, and I didn't want to do what some journalism students do, which is go out to the foothills of eastern Tennessee and work for some teeny tiny little, uh, as a reporter for some teeny tiny little newspaper, uh, work your way up. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to stay in Chicago. Uh, I took the advice of this friend of my brother's. Um, looked around and decided to go into public relations. It was 
not particularly fulfilling doing corporate public relations to enhance the public images of large corporations. But I will say I learned a lot. And it was actually a really good way to start because I really learned how corporate America works. I know a lot of people who are very idealistic and they immediately want to go into you know, public interest law or nonprofit work or work for an LGBT advocacy organization. And that's all very uh, well and good, but I actually think my advice to the extent that people would like to hear it is um, if you want to do social justice work, it's actually good to spend a year or two working in the corporate sector. First of all, to help pay back your student loans. <laughs> but secondly, and more importantly, to learn how the quote unquote real world works because you can actually take on the powers that be more effectively if you understand how they work and how they think. And so I think to the extent that I have been an effective activist, part of that is informed by the professional work I did in public relations in Chicago. Now, I, I think... Um I want to ask another meta theme question. <laughs> thinking about that background and what you just said, and thinking about, you know, when you came to New York, you uh, pretty readily became active on, on a lot of uh, advocacy issues. Um, what, it, what is your, what was your uh, perspective or uh, philosophy or approach in founding some of these? these organizations um, when you came to New York, given your history background, given this background in public relations, what was your, what sort of like the theory of change that you were kind of <laughs> working with? Well, suggesting that I had a theory of change is probably giving me more credit than I deserve. Um, I think that the only, I, the only career that I really consciously chose was my academic career. I feel like an accidental activist. I feel like I fell into it um, and was invited, for example, to join the group of people who ended up forming the board of Queen's Pride House, uh, was invited to join this little group that ended up becoming Iban Queer Koreans of New York, uh, was invited by a friend to work with uh, this friend to co-found uh, Niagara, um, I think that my, to the extent that I have a theory of change, it's, it's developed and evolved over the years. I think in terms of that meta question, <laughs> social change is a long-term project. And you can score short-term victories, but you really have to focus on long-term fundamental transformational change. Which isn't to say that there's a, an either-or choice between incremental change and fundamental transformational change. In fact, I think far from being in a binar binary opposition, to do one, you end up having to do the other anyway. But it's a perspective that's informed by my reading of history, I probably read more history than anything else, 
um, and looking at the history of many different movements, uh, looking at the history of the women's movement, the African-American civil rights movement, uh, the Asian-American movement, movements for indigenous rights, uh, the anti-apartheid Palestine uh, solidarity activism that I've been doing. Each of them has its own distinct history and context, but there are commonalities uh, that all of them share. And one thing that I think one has to do, and this is a fairly crucial point, is understand identity politics but not be limited by it. So in my view, there's a, an important role for identity politics and identity politics formations, which is to name specific types of oppression and challenge them and bring together, together people who have the common experience of that oppression but not be limited to single-issue politics or limited to understanding even those particular issues in an overly narrow conceptualization. So, for example, I'm probably better known for transgender activism than anything else. And in less than an hour, the transgender support group will be meeting here at Queen's Pride House, which I facilitate and coordinate. So there's a reason for a specific formation or venue or site such as this, because the people who come here share a common oppression based on gender identity or expression. That being said, I don't limit myself to a narrow conception of that. I'll give you an example. I read just um, yesterday about the first trans man who's openly transgendered serving in the Israeli military. Well, <laughs> that's obviously being used by the Israeli government in their pinkwashing campaign to pinkwash the illegal occupation of Palestine. Right? So great that the Israeli military allows openly LGBT people to serve. Great that there's a, an Israeli trans man who feels comfortable enough to come out in the military and serve in the military. But he is going to commit human rights atrocities just like every other member of the Israeli military and is going to contribute to the oppression of Palestinians living under the illegal occupation of the West Bank and East Jerusalem. And many of those people will be LGBT, whether they're out or not in Palestinian society. So I think we need not only an intersectional lens, and that's the popular term. Hi. Hi. Come on in. Um, so... I think the meta, the big picture here is that there are reasons for specific formations, whether those be transgender-specific, queer API-specific, in the case of Iban, QKNY, queer Korean-specific. Uh, 
women's spaces, etc. Um, there are compelling reasons for spaces like that, uh, which are entirely different from exclusionary spaces, such as for, you know, whites only or men only, right? Uh, and that's a false symmetry, because one type of space is meant to empower marginalized groups, and the other is meant to exclude them. That being said, um, one has to think through carefully why a space should be limited to a specific group of people at a specific group of time. And also think through... <laughs> Sorry about that. That's okay. Political formations. And in the case of not only LGBT politics, but social justice more broadly, I think a distinction has to be made between having people who are in the, the, the affected group, as it were, in leadership positions versus excluding allies from participation, which in general doesn't work. There might, be there might be very specific situations where that might be called for, but in general, that's I don't think is a, a, a good idea. Um, so I've worked in different types of formations, very often in coalition. Some of these initiatives have been successful, some less so. Uh, what what would you consider your biggest accomplishment in in your activism? Um, well, I I still think my leading the campaign for the New York City transgender rights law um, is my biggest accomplishment. Can you tell me a little bit about that and why why that was an important achievement? Well, it's a very long story, so I'll try to give you the short version. Um, the campaign lasted for less than two years, and well, it basically it started in February 2000, and we got the the bill signed to law in April 2002. So it was slightly over two years. The bill was introduced in June 2002. Um, it was vitally important because transgender people face pervasive discrimination, abuse, harassment, and violence in this city and throughout the country and in uh, most countries around the world. And New York City um, administrative code did not explicitly prohibit discrimination based on gender identity or expression. And case law was very limited and limiting. It was essentially limited to post-op transsexuals and people who are perhaps in the process of transitioning with uh, under the rubric of what I call the classic transsexual transition narrative. But there were so many people who were not covered. So it was really vitally important that they be protected from discrimination. But now, um, just to clar for clarity for this, um, when you say discrimination, are you talking about all kinds of discrimination, employment? or yes. So the New York City... Uh, administrative code prohibits discrimination based on employment, housing, and public accommodations, which are sometimes called the, you know, the big three, and then other things such as um, credit and education. 
So employment is fairly obvious, housing. Public accommodations is the thing that people don't necessarily understand, but it's any space that's not someone's home, someone's apartment or house. Um, and so it could be a store, a department store, a supermarket, a restaurant. Restrooms, public restrooms are now the hot topic with this whole bathroom panic. Um, and so it's really vital that people be protected from discrimination in all these situations. Now, ultimately, these are only forms of legal redress. And women and people of color can certainly attest to the fact that enactment of the 1964 Federal Civil Rights Act did not end discrimination based on sex or gender or race or ethnicity. But it gave legal redress to those who suffered discrimination, and it sent a signal that the federal government uh, would act against those who commit discrimination against women and people of color. Juridical rights are very important, but they are only part of a bigger picture. Oh, so. Okay, so let me just, I'm just gonna uh, rephrase. We just had to move uh, locations because um, due to logistical things here at Queen's Pride House. So my final question for you, you know, as someone who facilitates support groups, you know, you have your uh, various experience doing activism, et cetera, and we're, we had talked a little bit about your, um, uh, your skepticism regarding representational politics, et cetera. I'm wondering, uh, what do you hope for for trans communities these days? I hope for the full empowerment of the transgender community, by which I mean that everyone in the community can feel that they can actualize their identities, whatever those may be, that they can express themselves in terms of gender freely, without fear of discrimination, um, harassment, abuse, or violence. and. That is a long-term project. Um, as I said before, the 1964 Civil Rights Act certainly didn't end racism or sexism in the U.S. Uh, no law can do that. However, through changes in law and public policy, through the type of transgender sensitivity trainings that I do, through public education broadly conceived, uh, we can actually change hearts and minds and change society. I would remark upon the really remarkable progress that we've made in the last 22, 23 years since I started to do activism uh, in 1994. Uh, 23 years later, uh, the LGBT community is in a much better place. We still have very far to go. But if you think about the trajectory of the marriage movement, while marriage was never at the top of my list in terms of priorities for the LGBT community, I did support it because even though I share the, the feminist and the, the queer critique of marriage as a heteronormative institution, I don't think the state 
should be able to discriminate on the basis of sex, gender, sexual orientation, or gender identity in the issuance of marriage licenses. But in any case, if you look at the trajectory of the marriage movement, public opinion in the U.S. shifted on marriage more uh, quickly and radically than on any other social values issue in my lifetime. When the marriage movement started some 30 some years ago, it was a ha- it was three couples in Hawaii who wanted to get marriage licenses. I think two were lesbian and one was a gay male couple. Now, a majority of Americans in virtually every poll taken support marriage equality. And among people under 35, it's well over two-thirds, if not three-quarters majority. And so while the marriage movement is not necessarily a model for any other movement, the ability to shift public opinion on an issue that the marriage movement was able to uh, achieve is potentially a model. And so uh, in terms of transgender, if you think about the extraordinary visibility that transgendered people now have, uh, I am no fan of Caitlyn Jenner's. However, her coming out was a major public event. It was the first time that a transgendered woman coming out had such an impact and it was front page news everywhere. Um, while she has, I think, since kind of ruined her reputation in many ways, nonetheless, at the very least, it greatly enhanced the visibility of the transgender community. And so what we need to do is enhance the visibility of these marginalized communities and press for real change um, and ultimately for transformational change. We need to change the way society thinks about gender. Um, And we need to think very broadly about societal change and not limit ourselves either to purely uh, juridical questions of legal rights or to narrow identity categories, but really create a society which is freer and fairer for everyone and do so in terms of a global society as well. Um, I think that activism is just a label for making change. And I see myself as an agent of social change. And as a change agent, I feel called to do the work that I do. I certainly felt that in terms of founding the various organizations I co-founded. And in the last six years, uh, I felt a real calling to do Palestine solidarity activism in part because it's so hard and few people want to do it and because New York is the epicenter of the Zionist machine. And so it is, as I like to say, the best and the worst place to do this kind of work. Um, But 
it's also an example of where I refuse to limit myself to rigid um, identity formations, identity-based formations, uh, because ultimately an injury to one is an injury to all, as Martin Luther King would say. And so, to use a few other famous quotes, uh, as Mahatma Gandhi would say, we have to be the change that we want to see in the world. And um, so, being an activist, oddly enough, ends up being a little bit like the priesthood. <laughs> it's a priestly calling. It's a calling to do rather thankless work that most other people don't want to do. But the social change that we create is its own reward. Thank you so much, Pauline. Thank you uh, so much for the interview, Nadia.